This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. It is me, Steve Hall, and today I am joined by James Krieger. Uh, it's been a while since James has been on the show. It was episode 147, where we were talking about your high volume project, uh, which is back in March now, uh, last year. So I'm very happy to have James back on the show. How are you doing, James? Uh, good, thanks for having me again. And actually, on that note, with the high volume project, has anything... Um, since you kind of were experimenting with volumes, have you changed any of your kind of approach there or is anything, is there any updates to your kind of, yeah, changes in volume? Um, I, I haven't really changed my approach. I mean, for me personally, uh, um, weight training has kind of taken a little bit of a backseat and, and trying to gain more muscle. And so I've backed off a lot of my, on my training volume just because I've got a lot of business stuff going on and, and, and with my kids and stuff, I just, uh, um, right now I'm just focused on maintenance, you know? Um, um, so I haven't really been, been put, put in the effort into the volume with my own training, but, but as far as maybe what we talked about last time, I, I haven't really changed. I don't think I've really changed much in terms of my overall stance. Um, the, the one thing I think that has, um, that's become more evident to me though. Um, and I wrote about this some in my last research review that, um, um, I think that there is an, an interaction between volume and your rest intervals, um, which I think explains why you see some of the differences between some of these studies that have been published. Because um, you see some studies showing uh, hypertrophy to plateau at much lower volumes than other studies. But one key difference between the studies seems to be in the rest intervals. So if you're resting, if you're taking long rest between sets, you know, um, more than two minutes, let's say two and a half, three minutes or more. Um, it seems like you don't have to do quite as much volume as if you're taking really short rest intervals, like one minute or something like that. Um, but it seems like the end result is still the same. So I would say there's probably no advantage to doing real short rest training because um, you just have to do that many. You have to do just a bunch more sets to get the same hypertrophy effects. And so you're not actually saving yourself any time with the sh short rest intervals. So, uh, so yeah, I, I would say that's the one thing that that's kind of evolved with me um, uh, since we last spoke. Interesting. Well, um, hopefully uh, at least that if, if this kind of research that's coming out about low volume phases and potential kind of resensitization and uh, when you come back to pushing the higher volumes again, hopefully you're, you'll start growing effectively or very efficiently at least then. I don't yeah, know if, yeah. if you've looked into those much, you have kind of any thoughts on that literature? Um, that that really hasn't changed. Uh, I, I haven't seen, um, that still all remains very hypothetical at this point. Right. So, um, uh, so it'll be interesting if anyone ever decides to investigate it, so. Cool. Yeah, I think it was a lot of kind of detraining and hopefully you're not detraining at the moment you are managing to maintain things. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. 
with your out of interest in terms of for your own for yourself and for your own clients do you uh, time rest periods or do you kind of have a different approach to managing those i i tend to have my clients time their rest periods um you know i i'm not i'm not like super strict about it um but i typically I have my, I like to have my clients rest, you know, at least a couple minutes on compound movements. Um, and it's okay for, for isolation movements. If they want to go a little bit shorter rest, that's fine. Um, the, the big thing I tell them is I just don't want you, I don't want them, I don't want their weight training sessions to turn into a cardio session. So if they're huffing and puffing and having a hard time catching their breath from one set to the next, then the, then the rest intervals are too short. So um, that's kind of just what my general approach is. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Cool. Uh, so the first topic I really wanted to delve in with you, James, was regarding kind of diet breaks. And there's more and more interesting research coming out. And I know you recently uh, talked about the Matador study where they're having kind of a 33% calorie restriction and they had the group doing two weeks on, two weeks off. And they had the other do group doing kind of a continuous 16 weeks. So the two weeks on, two weeks off were double the time um, and they seem to have more success. And I think you had some really interesting thoughts around what may have been the reasons for that success uh, driven by the diet breaks. Yeah, I think the big thing with the Matador study is, I mean, the, the authors speculated that had to do with changes in energy expenditure and perhaps the diet breaks prevented some of the metabolic adaptation that occurs with dieting. But, but really, if you really closely look at the data, I would say that's, pro that's not really supported. Um, I really think just what happened was that the uh, <clears throat> the people in the intermittent diet group just uh, adhered to their diet much better. Um, and the reason I say that is because you know that group um, it, it was they, the both groups were on a pretty severe deficit. I, I don't remember the the exact magnitude of the deficit, but it was a pretty large deficit. And one group had to maintain that deficit for, you know, 16 straight weeks. And the other group only had to do, do that deficit two weeks at a time. And I think what happened is that, is that the group that uh, had the, the two-week diet breaks, I think they just did a better job of sticking with their diet. Because um, they, they only had to do things two weeks at a time. And so it wasn't as big of a deal. Um, you know, someone will tell me, well, you know, they provided food for the subjects in that study. And I'll say, well, yeah, but they're still free living subjects. And it's not like they don't have access to other food. You know, um, if they're not confined to a metabolic ward, then then even if you're supplying the food to the subjects, I'm not sure that's a great, uh, I, I'm not sure you can use that to say that they were, they were strictly adhering to their diets. So. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. Um, that that could be what the outcome was more than anything else and I, I wonder if in general you think with the kind of diet break studies and kind of taking diet breaks if you think it's not just the matador study that it's to do with adherence do you think it's it's mostly psychological do you think there are any kind of physiological benefits there uh, overall i think it's mainly psychological um uh i'm actually working on a study with some uh, guys from australia right now and um um you know, I've analyzed the data and, and, and that was a diet break study as well. And that didn't show any benefit either in terms of energy expenditure as far as the diet break was concerned. So um, uh, I, I would say overall, the evidence just doesn't really support 
um, any um, any physiological benefit to diet breaks. Um, um, it certainly doesn't seem to stop metabolic adaptation or anything like that. Um, I, I just think I just think it's I think it really is just mainly psychological. Now, I think there's some research and review somewhere that suggested that perhaps uh, lean mass retention is a little bit better on a diet with diet breaks. Um, I want to say that data is out of Bill Campbell's lab. Um, I think he's presented the data at a conference, but as far as I know, it hasn't been published. So, um, but uh, so perhaps, perhaps there's a benefit there. But in terms of energy expenditure and preventing metabolic adaptation, um, looks pretty much like to me the weight of the evidence would suggest uh, um, it's really not going to stop it. Uh, so. Awesome. Yeah. Do you think there's um, any, do you think there's a length of time? Do you think his diet breaks just not enough time? Do you think you'd need to have more than two weeks? Do you think then you might see some attenuation or do you think um, that that wouldn't, and I don't know how that would work into it. I guess that might be like, I don't know, you diet for three months, have a month break and a month might be enough to attenuate some of those kind of uh, dime regulations. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that would be the case. I mean, we don't have research on competitors, but we do have research on overweight and obese people, which has shown that even if they maintain weight loss for a particular, almost actually up to a year, they still show signs of metabolic adaptation. So, so I don't think the length of the diet breaks really has anything to do with it. So I think it's, yeah, it's something very interesting. I guess actually you brought up competitors versus gen pop and i i wonder if um you'd have any different kind of practical application there just because i guess for a competitor there's a, a true deadline uh also competitors yeah. i guess might be taking a deal a uh, sorry a diet break when they're leaner so maybe i don't know if that has any potential kind of greater effects because someone's leaner um what would your kind of the practical differences between a gen kind of general person and a competitor be for you it yeah, that's that, that's a good question. Um, I, I would say for both populations, I would say the main benefit is still psychological. But for the competitor, like I said, there could be, you know, with Gen Pop, you're not as worried about the lean mass retention. But but for a competitor, that's really really important. So I would say um, maybe there's a benefit there. Uh, I, Again, and I'm just going off some of the data I've I've heard of from Bill Campbell's lab to uh, that would suggest that there is some fat-free mass retention benefit there, um, and um, um, and I, I don't want to. And the other thing is I don't want to downplay the psychological advantage of it, especially if you're a competitor, because I mean when you're especially when you're getting really really lean. And you're, I mean, you're feeling really hungry. You're, you're just like starving. Even like just like a one week diet break can just, you know, assuming that you're able, that you don't overdo it and you don't like overdo it on your calories, a, a one week diet break can just work wonders for you psychologically. So, so, so even if the physiological benefit, let's say is, you know, iffy, um, I would say the psychological benefit is probably huge, um, especially for competitors. I, if anything, I think it might even be more beneficial for competitors than um, than Gen Pop. 
So um, uh, just because competitors are, are dieting so aggressively and they're trying to get so lean, um, I, I think, uh, and that's why I also favor longer prep times. Um, I know Eric Helms has argued for longer prep times and, and, you know, some of the other people in the industry are, have been arguing for longer prep times. I just, I just think, I just think with the longer prep times and, and putting some diet breaks in there, you're just going to do yourself so many favors. Um, number one, you give yourself room for if something bad happens or something goes wrong. Um, you, um, uh, I, I, I just think there's just so many benefits to, you know, cause it, you know, you get competitors having 12 week prep times and stuff and that's just not, that just doesn't give you enough room, you know? Um, you know, I haven't up to, I would say up to six month prep times with diet breaks in there. I think it's just works like uh, a lot better um, in terms of maximizing your muscle retention while dieting, you know, and actually there's even some research on competitors to show that, that, uh, is uh, one one study showed that bodybuilders who had a really really small deficit i mean it was really small maybe two three hundred calorie per day deficit maintained um pretty much all of their muscle uh going into a contest so um so that's why i would say that that definitely the slower uh tortoise approach to um to contest prep is definitely the way to go so I think, yeah, it's it's well said about the psychological element for competitors because I guess at least uh, competitors often, I guess, would feel like they're very much like go hard, go home. Like a lot of those sort of kind of mentalities work very well for bodybuilding and things like this. And I, yeah. I guess they might struggle then to pull back and they almost feel like, oh, if it's just psychological, then I don't need it. But do you think there's sometimes you think you don't need it, but actually it's going to give you more benefits than you even realize. Oh yeah. I, I think so. I, I, I think so. I, I think really pretty much all competitors should have diet breaks, you know? Um, uh, I, I just think even if you think you don't really need it, I think, um, um, let me put it this way. It's, it's not going to hurt you. The only way it would hurt you is if you're the type of person who, when you return to maintenance calories, you just binge or something instead. I mean, that, that's the only time where it might hurt you. But, uh, um, but if, if, um, um, but, but the thing is that that really shouldn't be an issue. I mean, if you're going to return to maintenance calories, you know, it's not like you're, um, you know, I mean, if you're strictly dieting anyway, you just, you still need to be strict you're just being strict on a higher amount of calories, what you're doing. So, yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually, I guess, uh, especially for competitors, if they're even, if they're at risk of a binging in such cases, I think you could think about like peak week, what are you going to do if, you know, I don't know, you've got a certain number of carbs, through, like oh, 500 yeah. grams of carbs, yeah. and then you just go to a <laughs> thousand. So at least it gives you practice for those. Yeah, sort of I, was, periods. I was just going to say that. I think it gives people good practice for maintenance periods and also gives people a good practice for when they're done dieting and they're done competing. Like it, it, it gives them practice for how to, how do you return to maintenance you know, without overdoing it. So. Absolutely. And I guess in terms of then going into the diet break and a lot of people hear diet break and they think, oh, I'm just, I'm completely off my diet. But like you said, it's still kind of somewhat restrained. Do you have yeah. any kind of practical kind of things that you might suggest people do when going into this week so that they don't get that urge to binge? 
Yeah, I mean, usually I'll tell people still stick with mainly the same foods that you're eating. You can just you just have room to eat more of it. So it doesn't, you know, a diet break is not a license to start eating a bunch of junk food and high energy dense foods and things like that. I would say, you know, still stick with foods that are high satiety and everything like that. Um, you know, you just you just now have the benefit of being able to eat a higher volume of food. So, absolutely, and. In regards to kind of programming them for competitors, do you have a kind of this number of weeks we're going to program one in or do you more so take it a bit more auto-regulatory? Is there kind of a, a range that which you might decide, I think that's probably a good time? Yeah, I'm, I'm a kind of a bit auto-regulatory on it. Um, I kind of just see how the person's doing um, and based on how they're feeling and everything like that. And then that's kind of, Usually when, if a competitor is, if it's obvious that a competitor is just getting mentally tired or something like that, or, um, um, or if, or if they've just been, or if let's say they've been dieting for quite a long time now, let's say they've been dieting a, a straight 10 to 12 weeks, then I might, you know, throw one in there. But, uh, but I, it, it's really, I think personally, I kind of deal with it on a, on a case by case basis. So. Brilliant. And I, I also hear people talk about, and I've even spoken about it in that you take the, kind of the diet break and sometimes it can, well, sometimes I've, I've had clients gain weight, lose weight, maintain weight. And often when it's kind of a weight loss, people assume or it's thought to be the fact that they're now dropping stress, dropping cortisol, and that's leading to water retention losses. And I believe I heard you say um, that there's actually data to support that cortisol doesn't necessarily rise along with dieting. So I wondered what you thought, what might the mechanisms be? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I used to I used to kind of buy into the whole cortisol hypothesis too, but but then I I found a bunch of data that showed that number one that um, cortisol tends to not really increase with dieting. Um, uh, in fact, I saw a meta analysis of a number of studies that showed that. And then I've even uh, found some research on fitness competitors, and these were women, um, and their cortisol levels didn't go up during their diet phase. So um, so whatever the reason is why people sometimes tend to have this whoosh or this flush effect or whatever, I honestly don't know. I mean, it doesn't appear to be cortisol. Um, I, it's hard for me to say what the actual mechanism is. Um, yeah. So I, you know, it's a really good question. I don't know what, what, what's behind it. It's this mysterious whoosh that everyone yeah talks about and yeah. we're not completely sure what's going on mechanistically yeah. but it's certainly interesting um in, in a related note james do you i in terms of deloading and maybe deloading in like a contest prep scenario do you have any kind of what's your approach to deloading in general um and then is there any kind of changes with do you change anything nutritionally during that time because something i've experimented with is combining deloads with diet breaks that seems to have a, a big fatigue reduction yeah that's typically what i'll do too because usually what i don't want to do is is have um have someone um uh go on go on a deload while they're still dieting um simply because now you're not giving the muscles the same stimulus and when you're dieting, you know, muscle protein synthesis goes down and stuff. And you really need that, that stimulus to, 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 to keep that muscle. So I would agree with you that I think it's best to combine deloads with, with, um, uh, with, with diet breaks. So. And you think even in 
if say in a deload week someone's still they've reduced their volume quite a lot their intensity is down they're still consuming high amounts of protein and everything and if they were to diet through it you still think in a, in a week that could still potentially lead to some muscle loss i maybe a little, i mean it's not going to be a huge amount yeah but you know but you know if you're a competitor and you're trying to maintain every ounce that you can i think it's probably just a better approach to um to, to make sure you have the diet break combined with the deload so and would that differ i guess we're talking about competitors would that differ towards the start of like a prep compared to the end because i guess towards the end they're at the risk of muscle loss just starts to increase yeah 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 i, I mean definitely if it's really early if it's really early in a prep then it's not going to be as big of a deal but you know so um but yeah um i think early in a prep it's safer to probably do it you know so it's it's interesting to me. I have a bit of a selfish um, <laughs> reason for asking the the, the questions because uh, I just told you off air. I'm in. I've just dieted for five weeks and I'm in a deload now. And typically I do diet break, uh, but I'd been obviously looking into the research myself and seeing a lot of it's psychological, not physiological. So I thought I'd try this deload to skip the diet break because I'm early on in my diet. I'm not super lean by any means. So it's interesting to kind of hear your thoughts on the process as well. And I kind of came to the conclusion there was no right or wrong answer at this stage, at least. And certainly what you said there in terms of taking them when you're deeper into contest prep makes much more sense. Yeah, yeah. Hey guys, hope you're enjoying the podcast. Just wanted to take one moment of your time to actually talk about our coaching services over at Revive Stronger. We at Revive Stronger, we offer an incredible premium personal coaching service just for people like you. And I know you will love it. Do you want to work with us? Here's what I need you to do. Head over to revivestronger.com. Go up to the coaching tab click on online coaching. Once there, read through the requirements and what it takes to be an online client. Once finished, hit apply now and you're only one step away from applying to our services. Fill out the Google form and you're done. And that was basically it. A coach is going to reach out to you shortly and then it's Team Revive Stronger. Awesome. Uh, so next question or kind of line of questions I have still relating to contest prep. Uh, this relates to Eric Salazar, um, who was a client of yours and he did fantastically well. And he used a weighted vest during his contest prep. And uh, for the listeners, I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of what uh, the hypothesis was uh, about kind of utilizing that. Um, and then we can talk about the outcomes, the lessons, and maybe if you'd practically apply that to any other people and what you'd recommend. Yeah, so... Um um, it was actually him that approached me about it. Um, uh, and he thought I, he, he, th he figured I would think he was crazy, but I uh, actually thought it was kind of a cool idea. So, uh, basically what he did was, um, um, when he did his contest prep, uh, what he did is as he started to lose weight, he would replace the weight that he lost on his body with, uh, with basically weighted apparel. It was, a, it started with a very lightweighted vest. Like I think it was a 10 pound vest or something like that. And he would actually wear it uh, most of his day. Um, so it wasn't just something he was wearing when he'd do cardio or whatever. He was wearing it like probably 90% of his waking hours. Um, and then what happened is as he continued to get leaner, he would add more weight. So he added, I think, uh, some ankle weights. Um, he then added like a heavier weighted vest and he even started to push 
his total weight, you know, um, so um, what he did was, um, uh, you know, so, so his actual body weight plus the external weight, um, like he started his prep at maybe 164 pounds or something like that. He actually pushed his external weight to where he was almost closer to 180 during the time. Um, and so um, we did this like throughout his prep. And the amazing thing was that um, he, he, sa he said it was the easiest prep he's ever had. So, um, so he wasn't nearly as hungry as he usually is. Um, he didn't have the temptations to binge like normal, you know, and everything like that. Um, and out of my own curiosity, I was like, well, um, you know, what's going on here? You know, you know, why is he having this type of effect? Um, cause, cause at first I thought it would just be an energy expenditure thing. Right. I just thought, well, you know, obviously as you're losing weight, um, if you're keeping on this external weight, you, cause the thing is, um, you know, as you diet and your body weight goes down, you have less mass to carry around. And so your energy expenditure just goes down just because, just because of that. Um, but by keeping that external load, um, you, you prevent that reduction in energy expenditure. But, but I felt like there has to be something more to it than just that. Um, and so I did some research and there's actually some research on, uh, on rodents, some really interesting work um, that discovered what they might call what you'd call a gravitostat. So what it appears to be is that in your bones, um, your bones are, um, are able to sense the loading. And uh, it appears that they have, the osteocytes have some sense, uh, be able to sense the amount of load that, that's on your bones. And they appear to give feedback signals to your brain in terms of appetite. Um, and that's what this rodent research showed. They put, uh, they implanted weights into the abdomens of these rodents. And um, what they found uh, was that the rodents ate less when they did this. Um, and the rodents actually, what, their, their external body weight shrunk to now where the total weight was what their original body weight was. And so, um, and like I said, the researchers did a bunch of tests to figure out what the mechanism was and they determined it was in the bone. And there was something about the bone sensing the external load and sending feedback signals to the brain to reduce appetite. And so I think that's what was happening with Eric too was that he just wasn't get, getting the same hunger signals that you normally would get um, when you're dieting for contest. Um, so it was really fascinating and was actually turned out to be just a really highly successful experiment. So That's incredible. I, I would have, just from hearing about it, I obviously thought about the implications to like non-exercise activity thermogenesis. You're heavier, so that's gonna help you burn yeah. more but I never had heard of the kind of, yeah, the effect that that might have kind of on your kind of frame and how that might lead to like attenuation of hunger. That seems incredible almost. And I guess in terms of doing it practically, I think for a lot of people probably isn't that practical. Uh, is there anything kind of lessons from this that you took with Eric that could make it more practical and more livable? Yeah, there are obviously limitations. Number one, it's not going to work for Gen Pop just because general population you know when they lose weight they want to keep the weight off and to maintain the to sustain the benefits of a weighted vest you'd have to wear it indefinitely 
Um, now for a competitor, that's not a big deal because you're just doing it for your prep, right? Um, so it's really only going to work for competitors. And the other thing, it's probably only going to work for you is if you're someone who already spends most of your day, let's say, standing and moving around. Um, because if you're at a desk job, you're not weight bearing at your desk, you know, you're not really, you're not going to have that benefit of the weight bearing. And so if you're at a desk job and sitting at a desk most of the day, it's not probably going to really benefit you. Um, but if you're a competitor, let's say you're personal training and you just, and you're on your feet all day and you're working with clients. Uh, and I mean, that's basically what Eric, you know, Eric, he, he owns his own gym. He's on his feet all the time. Um, if you can swing it and make it work, um, you know, they have weighted vests that you can get off Amazon. Um, the more expensive ones are pretty sleek. You can actually even wear them under your clothes and stuff. Um, Although that, I mean, they're kind of expensive. I mean, we're talking like around, you know, 200 some US dollars for one. Um, but, you know, if you're a competitor and it's something you want to try out, I mean, it definitely is something that's, that's doable. Um, you know, yeah, there's some practical limitations to it, but, but there are some people who will be in situations where they could actually probably make it work. So, um, so it's worth, you know, if you're in a situation where you think you can make it work and you're a competitor, it's, it might be worth a shot to try out, you know? So do you and Eric have an affiliate code? <laughs> you should. <laughs> We've kind of joked around that we should like market our own weighted vest or something like that. <laughs> we, I have one client running it now, um, as inspired by your experimentation. And something I would ask is, did you ever deload it? Was there any times you kind of took it away or and when you came out of contest prep was it something that you slowly removed or did you just kind of get rid of it immediately um so we didn't deload it at all during the whole prep um after prep was done um we did kind of slowly take some of the weight off um uh i think we did it slow although eric's still been he's still been wearing it at times but uh um yeah, I, I, I kind of recommend it, you know, when you come out of it, um, definitely, I think it's probably better to do it slowly um, rather than just remove it all at once. Um, that way, um, you know, I, I think it, it, it might, it, it uh, will probably um, uh, maybe help uh, minimize, you know, the risk of any, you know, post-contest binges and stuff like that, you know, because you won't get, because if you immediately remove it all, um, you may get, you know, much stronger hunger mm. signals than if you keep, than if you keep, uh, wearing it and maybe, uh, solely, you know, uh, take the weight off, you know, so. And I guess I was trying to think if there were any other strange implications, I guess it, it's fine if, as long as you can keep it on the whole time in terms of, uh, keeping it consistent is probably quite important yeah. because if you're taking yeah. it on and off and it's hard to then manage and know what's happening, especially if you're then considering peaking and kind of intakes for that i imagine it could be quite complicated yeah 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 cool uh so that was two main topics and one i wanted to touch on when we kind of talked about it kind of touched on it a little bit you'd spoken about how your training was kind of on the back burner a little bit and i know you've been utilizing blood flow restriction training a little bit and you have some bfr bands um and i'd love to talk a bit about this because it's kind of I think it's gone out of fashion a little bit. It's not spoken about as much. And I'd love to hear uh, what you think is kind of driving hypertrophy from BFR um, and the differences that might be in it compared to just traditional kind of pump work that people do. 
Yeah, I think um, uh, personally, I think the thing driving hypertrophy with BFR, I think it has something to do with motor unit recruitment. Um, now, I know some people might argue that uh, maybe metabolic stress is a factor in everything. I just feel like the evidence doesn't really strongly support that. Um, now, I will say, I don't think we quite know exactly the mechanism of BFR, but I would say if I were to, to you know, if you were to tell me, okay, well, but what's the weight of the evidence? Where is it tilted? I would say it's probably tilted towards some, basically, uh, basically you just start recruiting those high threshold motor units and those fast twitch muscle fibers earlier in a set um, than you normally would. It, it's basically almost like you're pre-fatiguing the muscle, really. Um, um, now, BFR really isn't going to give you advantage, any advantage in hypertrophy over traditional training. Um, and it's probably not going to give you any advantage of just over just taking light weights to failure. Um, it's just, but what it does do is, uh, you know, it's like taking a lightweight to failure, but, but, but you're basically pre-fatiguing the muscle. So you can use even a lighter weight or, or perhaps you don't have to do as many reps as you would, you know, um, if you're doing a lightweight to failure. So, um, so I would say there, that's probably a little bit of the advantage there. Um, I mean, I would, the big advantage for me in BFR and the reason I started doing it is, you know, I'm, I'm 46 years old and, and I just start getting joint issues, you know, um, um, even when I'm training like low volume and stuff, it, actually what's kind of weird is it seems like my joint issues crop up during my low volume cycles versus high volume. And I'm, I'm not sure why that is. Maybe it's more of a kind of use it or lose it type thing, you know, M maybe doing more volume kind of keeps my joints lubricated. I don't know. but. Uh, um, I've just been noticing I've just been having more and more joint issues. Um, and so BFR uh, gives my joints a break, but still lets me, you know, uh, have good stimulation of the muscles. So, And I guess in that way, it sounded a bit similar to like my reps, uh, where you do kind of the activation set and then you uh, restrain your rest period so that you still have pre-fatigued um, yeah. muscle fibers. Is it is it very, very similar or do you think they should be used differently no, no i think it's i think it's very similar to the concept yeah um so um i think bfr is best used uh with isolation movements um i would say the data on compound moon say uh, um it may not work as well um but i think it's a great tool with isolation movements uh um you know if you're doing any type of direct arm work, um, if you're doing, you know, leg extensions, leg curls, things like that, I think, uh, or even calf raises, stuff like that, I think BFR can work pretty, uh, really well. So. And I don't know if, um, you've seen, I, I imagine you will have There's, I think there's some literature showing that it doesn't, it says it doesn't cause muscle damage. Is that something you believe in or is that something that you agree with that literature? Yeah, I haven't read that literature, but, my guess is, yeah, it probably doesn't. I mean, I would say it probably doesn't cause a lot of muscle damage simply because the load loading is so light and everything. Um, and typically, too, there there doesn't usually when you're doing BFR, the reps tend to be faster, and there there tends to not be a big eccentric component to it. So, so I would say, yeah, it probably doesn't cause as much uh, muscle damage. So, and I think that's why uh, that is one advantage of BFR too. It, I mean, it, you can actually train more frequently you can train a particular muscle group more frequently with BFR, so. 
I just, I remember one case, I maybe went too hard with it um, in that I was in a peak week and I used some BFR um, during that peak week and was kind of hope, uh, kind of holding on this limited muscle damage. And I, I know there's a bit of kind of uh, controversy about muscle damage and soreness, but I got horrifically sore uh, yeah. the following days and I was still sore on stage, which was <laughs> disappointing. <laughs> so uh, in terms of BFR, do you have any... Um, kind of thoughts on potentially periodizing it or is it something you're happy to have year round? I don't think there's any need to periodize it. I, I think it's just kind of more as a, on an as needed basis, you know, um, for some people, they don't even, like I said, they, they won't even need it. Um, like I said, I think the biggest benefits are, you know, if you're recovering from an injury, if you're having joint issues, if you just want some variety in your training, you know, um, or if it's something, like I said, you're, you're trying to, bump up your weekly volume and frequency on something, but you want to do it without, you know, causing yourself a bunch of joint issues. Um, I think, uh, I think that's where it can be a benefit as well, you know, so. fantastic. But, but if someone decides not to do it, it's not like you're missing out on anything right. magical or special, you know? Cool. And something actually, we've got a bit more time. I would love to hear, um, some probably your summary of thoughts. It was within the, your latest, uh, weightology that has come out and it was talking about, volume or training to failure and um, which one would build more muscle and i'd love just like some concluding maybe comments on that if you can do that yeah yeah i, I basically i think i'd say the bottom line is the heavier you train like in terms of loading um the, the less the less you need to train to failure so if you're using sets that where you would fail around you know i'd say eight reps um you can lead you know you could train with maybe you know, to four or five reps and leave those last three or so in the tank. Um, and, and you'll gain just as much, much muscle as if you basically push those loads to failure. Um, however, if you're training with light loads, you know, if you're doing 20 reps, you know, things like that, you, you pretty much got to get really close, if not to failure. Um, and, and I'd say just kind of, it kind of scales like that. So the lighter the load, the more reps you can do, the closer to failure you're going to have to get. You know, I would say that pretty much really sums it up fairly well. So, brilliant. And I guess that's on a to equate. So, uh, in terms of the sets of maybe like twenty repetitions, um, would a set of twenty with some reps in reserve still grow you? Just maybe not as much as going to failure, or are we leave quite it, a lot. It, it depends. Like if you do a set of 20, let's say with a one or two reps in reserve, you'll probably grow just as much as if it was 20 reps to failure. But if you leave four or five reps in reserve, um, yeah, you might grow a little bit, but probably not nearly as much. Um, it seems that definitely with the lightweights, um, it's those, those last reps that seem to be, give you the most stimulation versus if you're training with heavier loads, it seems like the stimulation happens, you know, fairly early in a set. Uh, which is why you don't need to, to, to take it as close to failure, you know, so. Fantastic. And I'd love to kind of dig into any future projects you might have. I know you said you're working with the guys in Australia on some diet break stuff. Is there anything else in the pipeline and anything you can share any insights? Yeah, I got the, uh, there's the diet break study. I'm working with uh, Jackson uh, Pios and um, um, some other people in Australia on that one. Um, as far as other research is concerned, um, actually, 
uh, Greg Nichols and Brandon Roberts and I collaborated on, on something on basically comparing gender differences in terms of strength and hypertrophy. Um, we just, we did a big meta-analysis and that just, uh, that was accepted for publication and it just, it's just going through proofs now. So you'll see that very soon. Um, you know, uh, as far as any other projects, you know, nothing, nothing. I am working on a project with Chad Landers. This, this is more related to, uh, finances though. Uh, you know, um, I think a lot of personal trainers, um, tend to not be really great with their finances. And so we're working on a course to actually help trainers with and fitness professionals with their finances, whether it's, you know, planning for retirement or, you know, investing or how to manage debt and all that stuff. So we're, so we're working on that. That'll be out sometime this year. I can't say, I'm not sure when, um, we're still doing a lot of work uh, on it right now. So, um, so yeah, that's some of the stuff we've got going on. Amazing. I think that'll be, incredibly valuable because i think a lot of personal trainers to become self-employed and when you yeah. take a personal training qualification do you get taught about finances not whatsoever so yeah yeah i think having a resource from people who have been experienced and have done this that'll yeah. be invaluable i'll be looking at that <laughs> yeah and i want to also give a massive shout out to james because you made your volume bible uh for hypertrophy free and available for the listeners yeah. Um, which I shared over Facebook, but we'll make sure that's linked below as well. Cause I know that was kind of like a, a big hobby horse of yours that you've been kind of putting information into for ages. Yeah. Yeah. And my final question for you, James is, uh, are you, I don't know if anyone's asked you this, uh, do you have any plans in future to compete again? I know you did men's physique a few years ago. Do you have any other kind of, do you have a fire there that's brewing? No, not really. I really, I, I really don't see myself competing again. Um, you know, it was fun to do for uh, at one time. Um, I'm just so focused on my business and stuff now that, that, like I said, you know, weight training for me is right now it's just been about just maintaining my fitness level and stuff like that. So I haven't been super serious about trying to gain more muscle or, you know, I'll still experiment with some things with my training, you know, um, but overall, you know, I'm not trying to kill myself to, to try to, to gain more size and, and stuff. Um, um, yeah, I really, I probably, I don't really see myself competing again. Um, I mean, who knows, maybe that'll change, but certainly I don't see it happening anytime soon. So that's absolutely fair enough. Uh, and obviously you're still taking people to stage. So we talked about Eric, um, so James has his own coaching services, so we we'll definitely make sure people are aware of that. And obviously we mentioned weightology as well. Is there anywhere else you think people should look you up or try and find out more information from you, James? Yeah. Yeah. Just my website, weightology. And then also if anyone wants to follow my social media accounts, those are on my website as well. So fantastic. Thank you so much, James, for your time. Thank you everyone for listening and we will catch you very soon. Take care. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Flohr. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course.
The Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. It's also gonna be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're gonna have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.